All right, shall we begin with prayer? Our God and Father, your word is a lamp unto our path. It is also a mirror of our world, a mirror of ourself. We enter into two narratives tonight that are a particular egregious reflection of that tarnished and corrupted mirror. We are grieved on the one hand by the tragedy, outraged on the other hand by the brutality, the tragedy and brutality of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. We are reminded virtually every day by our media and by our own communities the mirror of depravity that is reflected in these chapters. We realize how liberating the gospel is and the mirror of your grace is the true and genuine speculum, the true and genuine mirror of our desire. We would, O Lord, that you would not only teach us, but that you would draw us into the drama of the passion of the heavenly bridegroom. It enabled us to see the mirror of Christ as the solace, the comforter, the redeemer of those who have been tarnished and brutalized by sin. Let us not descend with David into the downward spiral of his own career, but let us ascend in the resurrection spiral of the eschatological David. And let us place ourselves at his heavenly feet presence of your majestic glory, O Father, as well as blessed Holy Spirit, let us bask in the radiance of heaven's everlasting righteousness. We pray humbly for Jesus' sake. Amen. Before we go uh, into this chapter, I want to point out the reference that is on the sheet, namely Shimon Bar-Afrat's Narrative Art in the Bible, which has a very lengthy section on 2 Samuel 13. Bar-Afrat is uh, one of the uh, Hebrew school of narrative artists and critics, 
and this is an excellent introductory book to narrative art in the Bible. Uh, it is a required text in the seminary, and yet there is uh, help there for even lay readers. With a slight caution, uh, he does capitulate to some higher critical vocabulary on occasion, but nonetheless uh, is not captivated by it as German and British and American liberals are. The Hebrew school has been distinctively unique in emphasizing a more traditional view of the Hebrew text. But I uh, mention it because of uh, the excellent introduction to narrative art in the Old Testament and also to his particular skill in working through the text of this 13th chapter. We have arrived at the rape of Tamar in 2 Samuel chapter 13. A story of love and hate, lust and disgust, conceit and deceit, potence and impotence, parasite and fratricide. A story of beauty and the beast. A story of fathers and sons. A story of reaping what you sow. Of fathers eating sour grapes and the children's teeth being set on edge. A story of what goes around comes around. This is a story of David. Though playing only a minor role, it is his story. Though passive and relatively uninvolved, it is the story of the king and his kingdom. It is the story of Absalom, son of David. It is the story of Tamar, daughter of David, sister of Absalom. It is the story of Amnon, son of David. It is the story of Jonadab, nephew of David, cousin to the house of Jesse. Second Samuel 13 is a story of the house of David. We are ushered into the family, into the innermost recesses of the palace. This is a story about a family, a family torn, a family shamed, a family debauched, a family divided. Second Samuel 13 is a story about the family of the king. The curtain is raised in verse 1. The main characters of our narrative are introduced. Here are the dramatis personae. Absalom, son of David. Third born, son of David. 
offspring of Maaka, Maaka of Gesher, foreign Transjordanian princess, Absalom, handsome Absalom, beautiful Absalom. Absalom is of thoroughbred royal stock, father and mother both of regal blood. Tamar, Maaka's second child to David, beautiful Tamar, sister of beautiful Absalom, daughter of a princess and beautiful David. And Amnon, Amnon, son of David, Amnon, firstborn son of David, Amnon, son of David, and Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. Now Amnon loved his half-sister, loved her to the point of sickness over her, loved her virgin form, sickened himself with fantasies of love, fantasies of fixation, fantasies of obsession, fantasies of frustration. For she was a member of the family. She was a part of his house, part of the house of David. She was of his blood, of the king's blood, and he could hardly complete his fantasy. Family circles proscribe certain acts, a taboo, a taboo barred Amnon from fulfilling his fantasy. But the family had its own wise man, a shrewd and clever fellow, cousin Jonadab, And Jonadab witnessed the lust sickness of Amnon, the unfulfilled fantasy, and inquired of its cause. I am in love with my sister. And Jonadab, clever Jonadab, suggested a way for lust to have its end. Taboos. Taboos are meaningless to those with status, he suggests, those with privilege. What is royal blood if it does not buy certain liberties, certain license? Jonadab is truly a clever fellow. We will petition the head of the family, he suggests, and devise a scheme for Tamar to visit you in your sick room. We shall suggest an illness which needs the special attention of Tamar, a visit from your sister, your nurse. A few cakes from her hand, a few moments alone, Your desires may be satisfied by careful arrangement. A child of the king should not fret. A child of the king should not fret from self-denial. What delights the royal eye should delight the royal flesh.
Now David unwittingly becomes the pawn in the game. David comes to the scene of the proleptical crime and sees no more than genuine illness and need. The ruse works perfectly and the scheme advances. The beauty is summoned to the house, to the chamber of the lecherous fantasizer, and Tamar takes the dough. And she needs the dough. And she forms the cakes. And she bakes the cakes. And she takes the pan. And she dishes out the cakes. But there are too many eyes. Lust conceived secretly in the fantasies of the heart must be brought forth secretly. Leave, go away, close the door. But how, how to get her into the bedroom? Bring the food to my bedside, for I am ill, dear sister. Come to me that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar comes, unsuspecting, innocent Tamar comes. No other eye, no other taboos. All is as he had imagined it. So many times he had imagined it. And now she comes. Her beautiful virgin form approaches the cakes in her hand. And his hand seizes her. Come lie with me. Tamar is shocked. Tamar is alarmed. She protests. She pleads. She reasons. She resists. Amnon has said yes to his fantasy. Jonadab has said yes to Amnon's fantasy. David unwittingly has said yes to Amnon's fantasy. The servants have exited implicitly saying yes to Amnon's fantasy. Tamar says no. But her pleas cannot overcome Amnon's strength. The strength of his fantasy is too powerful. The strength of his scheme is too powerful. The strength of his sin is too powerful. He has her in his power and he rapes her. Brutally, callously, heartlessly rapes her. Fantasy has become reality. But oh, the bitter taste of that reality. Amnon hated her with a great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. Go, get up, get out. Tamar, the shamed, beseeches, do not put me out. You have dishonored me. Do not disgrace me like a common street prostitute. But the power of his disgust is now revulsion. He is sick of her for whom he had been sick. 
The servants he had put out are brought in. Throw her out. Throw this thing out. But is she not your sister, Amnon? Throw this thing out. Her name has disappeared from his lips, you will note. She's a thing. And Tamar went out. Tamar went out in her princess robes. Went out in her robe of many colors. Her beautiful robe of many colors. Tamar departed in her colorful princess robe, a robe that marked her as a virgin, a virgin daughter of the king's house, and Tamar tore her robe, tore her beautiful robe. Beautiful Tamar tore her beautiful robe and put ashes on her head. Tamar marked herself with the signs of disgrace and went away crying. Tamar went away crying for shame and injustice. But Absalom, Absalom, her brother, urged her to keep silent. So Tamar remained silent and desolate in her brother's house. Tamar withdraws to obscurity and silence. When David heard it, he was angry. When David heard it, he was very angry. But David did Nothing. Absalom was angry. Tamar's brother was angry and Absalom began to fantasize. Absalom began to scheme. Absalom began to plan. And David, David sent Amnon to take his place in Absalom's scheme. And Absalom avenged his sister's honor. Absalom avenged his sister's honor, leaving Amnon desolate and silent in the grave. The inspired narrator has woven a narrative masterpiece into the story of David. Called by the liberal higher critics the succession narrative, this episode in the life of Amnon is alleged by these liberals to be the ground of his disqualification from the line of succession to the throne of Israel. Such an explanation is obtuse, literally, as it is stupid theologically. And I don't hesitate to call liberals stupid. The Lord, in his righteousness, is a sovereign requiter of justice. Even his own he chastens. Even those after his own heart receive payment in kind. 
If we in the contemporary Christian community have lost a sense of retributive chastisement, even for the gracious, it is because we have lost the insight of the inspired author of 2 Samuel. Remember what the scriptures say. What you sow, you shall reap. That is God's retributive word. For believer and unbeliever alike, you don't get any free passes for your sins, except at the cross of Christ. Did David gaze upon the beauty of a woman forbidden him? So does Amnon. Did David scheme to take her, to violate her sexually? So does Amnon. Did David devise a scheme of deceit to trick innocent and unassuming Uriah the Hittite? So does Amnon trick and deceive Tamar. Did David murder the loyal Uriah? So does Absalom murder Amnon. Did David have his henchman Joab do his dirty work? So Absalom has his servants do his. The circle which David has drawn with Bathsheba has been drawn within his own house. You reap what you sow, even Grace-hearted David. Thus says the Lord, the sword will never depart from your house. I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. You did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel. Second Samuel 12, 10 to 12. from your own household. The emphasis upon the family unit is unmistakable here. In this chapter, notice the narrator's reiteration of the familial bonds. Verse 1, son, sister, son. Verse 2, sister. Verse 3, brother. Verse 4, son, sister, brother, and on we go. In this narrative, brother is used 11 times and sister is used 8 times. The drama of the royal house is a drama of the kingdom, and this kingdom is riddled with lust and murder. This kingdom is advanced by deceit and injustice. David, who could not control his own passions, cannot control the passions of his sons. The David, who would not deny himself, discovers his sons will not deny themselves. The house of this kingdom is torn, even as Tamar's purity is torn from her. So the integrity and dignity of this kingdom is torn, raped, defiled, dishonored. What a tragic failure is this kingdom. What a dishonorable kingdom is this house. I have suggested that the central motif of this narrative is the family, the household of the king, 
The central theme of this narrative is love-hate. The story is a profound depiction of the love-hate relationship without the inadequacy of psychological detail, without the insufficiency of moralizing reflection. Note how the writer alerts us to the central role of this love-hate theme. He unfolds his pattern by means of an inversion. And you can see this inversion even in your English text. Follow me by looking at verse 1. Amnon loved Tamar. Verse 15a, Amnon hated her with a greater hatred, verse 15b, than the love with which he loved her, verse 22, Absalom hated Amnon. The story begins with love in verse 1, it ends with hate in verse 22, and the climax of the story is the crisscrossing the crisscrossing of hate with love in verse 15. It is a perfect thematic inversion. And the hatred of Absalom in verse 22, the hatred of Absalom is ominous, portentous, proleptic. For we begin to perceive we begin to perceive that Absalom's deliberate and careful plan to murder Amnon is indicative of his own deliberate and careful plan to unseat his father and seize the throne of the house of Judah. Eliminate the firstborn son. Hatred is like a fire whipped by a Santa Ana. It consumes all in its path. The silence of Absalom in verse 22 is malevolent. It is malevolent. But the silence of David, the silence of David in verse 21 is impotent. He is angry, we are told, but he does nothing. Where is the king who executes justice in his kingdom? Where is the anointed of the Lord who begins at his own house to make wrong right? He is passive, a passive bystander. Silently watching life go by, life which he is unwilling and unable to control. Here is the king who came to grieving Bathsheba to comfort her on the death of the child born of their adultery. Where is he now when desolate Tamar needs a word of comfort, yea, more needs an act of justice? He is withdrawn. He is silent. He is passive. He is utterly irresponsible. And as he was the unwitting tool of Amnon, 
So he becomes the unwitting tool of Absalom. In verse 7, he unwittingly plays the role of Amnon's pimp. In verse 27, he unwittingly plays the role of Absalom's accomplice. Tamar weeps in verse 19, weeps for her shame and the injustice of her ravishment. David weeps in verse 36 for Absalom, for shame, for shame that the rank vengeance of this bloody son goes unrepaid. David shall weep. David shall weep for Absalom once more, but Joab will shame him with his own impotence. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. Second Samuel 19, verse 6, the inversion returns chiastically. You don't think this narrator is a literary genius? Oh, please. Now, I draw your attention to several other literary devices in this narrative, the dramatic character of the plot. The dramatic character of the plot is advanced and heightened by the pattern of request and response. Verses 1 to 10 contain several requests which are fulfilled in response until verse 12. At verse 12, Tamar abruptly breaks the pattern. Her response to Amnon's request is an emphatic no. We are slapped upside the head with somebody who will not respond to this wretch. It is a display of her integrity. The masterful technique of retarding the action in verses 7 to 11. You will notice how he slows down the camera. That retardation serves to increase the suspense. The drawn-out description of Tamar's preparation of the cakes is slow, deliberate. We are tempted to say tedious and boring, but delay may bring restraint. Drawing it out may bring Amnon time to repent. Slowing it down may cause him to slow down his incestuous passions. But the abrupt proposition of verse 11, the abrupt proposition breaks the suspense. The coaxing, that abrupt proposition of Amnon does not surprise us. But the abrupt dismissal of Tamar, despite her coaxing, does surprise us. She has been used and now is to be discarded. Abruptly, forcefully, insensitively, virginity lost, Tamar sits in humiliation. Beauty lost, Tamar sits in ashes. Future lost, Tamar sits in desolation. 
The writer of 2 Samuel 13 has masterfully drawn us squarely into the story by leading us through each scene, not in a leering and obscene manner, but in an openly frank and, 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 and sensitive empathy for a tragic figure, Tamar the violated, Tamar the manipulated, Tamar the used and abused innocent sufferer. Tamar the beautiful becomes Tamar the desolate. Tamar the virgin becomes Tamar the defiled. Tamar the gentle and unassuming becomes Tamar the ruined and rejected. Degraded, dehumanized, depersonalized, Tamar remains despondent in her brother's house. She weeps alone. With the king, her father, powerless to right the wrong, unwilling to plead her case, unwilling to daub her tears, unable to bear her sobs on his shoulders. Who will restore Tamar? Who will bring her out? of desolation into the family again. Who will draw her with the cords of love into the kingdom family once more? Who will approach Tamar with words of comfort? Who will assure her that she may be loved? that she may be the object of compassion, not lust. Who will tell her that her dignity may be restored? Who will assure her that her integrity can never be violated? Who will let Tamar's hot tears fall upon him and say, I do not condemn thee. Who will say to her not, go from me, you thing, but come unto me. Come unto me. Come with your burdens, you violated ones. Come with your grief, you desolate ones. Come unto me, and I will make you whole. I will heal your broken heart. I will bind up your wounded soul. I will take away your reproach. I will bring you into a family where you will never be violated, never be used, never be abused, never be an object a thing, a pawn of debauchery. Come to my house. Come to the house of the King of Kings. Come to my house, to my kingdom, and I will protect your dignity. I will guard your integrity. 
I will preserve your purity. Come to my house, the house of my kingdom, saith the Lord Jesus, and I will plead your case. I will be your advocate. Do not weep. I will give you what the world can never give. I will give you an undefiled heart in a house of love forever and ever and ever. Let me put my robe upon you. Let me put my long-sleeved robe upon you. Here, let me take away the garments of your shame and let me cover your shame with my spotless robe. Let me hide your reproach beneath the robe I provide. Let me dress you in a robe that can never be torn. Let me clothe you with a seamless garment. He shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Their robes shall be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And they shall sing hallelujah to the King of Kings. In the house of David's greater son. In his father's house. In the house of the Son of God. They will sing hallelujah. And they shall weep. No more. Even the Tamars shall weep no more. The Bible portrays sexual depravity candidly, plainly, accurately. Because sexual depravity is a reality in a sinful world. But as ugly and vicious as is the rape and rejection of Tamar, so lovely and beautiful is the revelation of the word of God with regard to sexual ecstasy between a man and a woman in the bonds of marital love. That antithesis of 2 Samuel 13 is the sublime song of Solomon, where the Bible provides a lavish revelation of intimate sexual love between a man and a woman who are united to one another beneath the benediction of God. The Bible portrays sexual exhilaration candidly, plainly, and accurately in the eight chapters of Solomon's song. I refer you to my audio lectures on the Song of Solomon, which are posted 
on the nwts.edu website. Rape is not only a brutal sin, it is a degrading sin. It reduces a human being to a thing, an object of sexual power and pleasure. It is not love. It is not. Rape is a dehumanizing sin, attacking the personhood of a human being and crippling it, if not destroying its integrity, its dignity, its being made in the image of God. This is not Love, it is not. Rape is a violent sin, forcing by pain and torment the release of lust and brutal subjugation. Rape is not love, it is not. Rape is a sin that leaves scars. Physical, emotional, psychological scars of fear, Anxiety, terror, frigidity. Its effects are not the effects of love. They are not. Rape is a God-defying sin, rebelliously scorning his protection of human sexuality, of its dignity, of its loveliness, of its integrity. Rape is an act of hating God by brutalizing another human being bearing God's image. This is not love. No, it is not. Rape is a Christ-repudiating sin, violating the sweet, tender, affectionate union between Christ and his bride. For Christ to rape his bride His beloved spouse, his dearly beloved, is a concept which is unthinkable. Sin of rape is heaven ignoring. I ask you, can you commit rape in heaven? Could Amnon violate Tamnar if the two of them were standing before the face of God in heaven? To ask the question is to answer the question. It is inconceivable. An eschatological ethic, a heaven-centered, Christ-centered, God-centered ethic will make rape unthinkable. It will make rape undoable. It will make rape pass away, for there is no rape in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I also want to comment on the interwoven narrative threads, the unfolding ripples of this narrative flow, which we have been tracing ever since David's settlement in Jerusalem in chapter 8. There is Amnon's circle, the ripples of Amnon's circle drawn within the narrative ripples of David's circle, and that ominously. There is Tamar's circle drawn into Amnon's circle, and that tragically. She is tragically drawn into the ripples of Amnon's rippling narrative. There is Absalom's circle, 
which is also Tamar's circle drawing Amnon into itself and that murderously. And there is Jonadab's circle impinging on Amnon's and David's circle and that cleverly, yea, insidiously. Each narrative circle is drawn by our narrator with a central character whose characterization drives the plot, the perverted plot of this narrative. Amnon calculating, fantasizing, predatory rapist. Tamar, innocent, attentive, kindly victim. Absalom, calculating, predatory, premeditating murderer. Jonadab, manipulating, conniving, counseling cousin, yet indifferent to the murder of the one whom he counsels as he is indifferent to the sexual humiliation of the one his counsel entraps. But we must not forget David, the dupe. The dupe, passive, impotent father and monarch. David's circle drawing this brutal, malevolent, tragic sequence within its own ripples of narrative flow. Nathan's prophecy of 2 Samuel 12:11 unfolds apace. I will raise up against you evil from your own household. The ebbing narrative ripples reverberate. They reverberate with the sound of the prophetic declaration. Retributive chastisement. Retributive chastisement ripples forth in the ripples of David's ever on rippling narrative. Now let me point out a couple of structural elements in this chapter. First of all, there's a broad uh, structure in verses 1 to 22 where the narrative action is described and portrayed. And then in verses 23 to 37, there is the reaction to that narrative initiation. This is a very well integrated narrative plot uh, summary and uh, a narrative diagram, and you can break it down in terms of this action-reaction superstructure. But I also want you to notice that the unit is self-contained. The whole unit is self-contained. You will notice verse 1 and verse 37. I'm sorry, verse 39. I should have made this 39. 
you look at those two verses, you will notice an inclusio. In verse 1, Absalom, son of David, plus the name Amnon. In verse 39, David longed for Absalom, plus the name Amnon. The major characters of this narrative, with the exception of Tamar and Jonadab, are included in the beginning and ending units or verses of this story, forming a well-defined envelope around the plot which unfolds between the bookends of the inclusio. And the fact that we have David, Absalom, and Amnon at beginning and end is significant, and I'll comment on that in a little bit. Now, if you'll take your hand out and glance at the chiasm that is present in verses 1 to 22, you will notice the parallel mirror-like chiastic structure of this section. Uh, What I have uh, placed on the sheet is not uh, peculiar to me. I I am not the author of it. I'm simply uh, recognizing it and uh, diagramming it for you. It comes from uh, two uh, very fine Hebrew scholars, J.P. Fockelman, whom I mentioned before, and George P. Wrightout, both of whom have published uh, on this pattern. And so you can see it worked out uh, in detail there. But I also want you to notice a pattern of duplication in verses 23 to 39. You see the duplication in the chiasm. A and A prime are duplicated or parallel. B and B prime, C and C prime, D and D prime, E and E prime, and so on. That chiastic duplication is a pattern of narrative duplicate symmetry. There is also a pattern of symmetry or duplication in verses 23 to 39. Each sub-scene of those final 17 verses uh, can be broken down into a pattern of duplication. You will notice that in verses 23 to 27, the center of the drama involves Absalom and Amnon. That's the first sub-scene, sub-scene 1 of verses 23 to 39. Subscene 2 is verses 28 to 29, which duplicates the Absalom-Amnon interchange or interaction. They are the primary objects of the narrative subscene number 2 in verses 28 and 29. So we have another duplication or symmetrical relationship in the end of this uh, narrative reaction. Now in verses 30 to 33, the primary characters are Jonadab and David. That is subscene number three. And in verses 34 to 36, it is duplicated. Jonadab and David, once again, are the uh, central characters in subscene number four. <clears throat> again, I'm pointing out the fact that the narrator has not only used chiastic symmetrical duplication, he is using uh, <coughs> parallel or continuous synthetic duplication in the end of this chapter. We come then to subscene number five, verses 37 to 38, where we meet Absalom and David. And once again in verse 39, which is subscene number six, the final subscene of this reaction section, 
Absalom and David, or actually David and Absalom in reverse. He places a chiastic reversal in the way he lists their names. Absalom and David, 37, 38. David and Absalom, verses, verse 39. Now, as we look at verse 23 and verse 29, we have a further implicit bracket or implicit sub-inclusio. You'll notice in verse 23 that the name Absalom occurs along with the phrase, the sons of the king or the king's sons. That means David is implicitly in mind in verse 23, although he is not mentioned by name. In verse 39, we have David and Absalom again. So this reaction section of the narrative has its own inclusio or bracketing feature. Absalom and David, David and Absalom. The fact that this chapter ends with Absalom and David, even as it begins in verse 1 with Absalom and David, is a marker that the narrator is placing for us to pick up our attention. This ending marker of David and Absalom is portentous. It is ominous. It is a foreshadowing device. For in the next six chapters of our narrator's record of David, the whole focus is going to be upon David and Absalom. Now, I have outlined the inversion there, and if you'd like to label the inversion on your handout, love at the beginning of the inversion in verse 1, hate in verse 15a, love in verse 15b, and hate in verse 22. The inversion, each place reverses or inverts the previous uh, uh, quality, and the whole is inverted Verse 1 and verse 22 are inverted. He crisscrosses it at the climax of the narrative in order to show you the irony of this kind of lustful quote-unquote love. It's not love at all. It is, in fact, revulsive hate. Do you have any questions about... the rape of Tamar, or any comments you would like to make. Scott? Um, I I remember everything you said here, Tamar is viewed as innocent, and I'm not trying to distract from that, but is there anything narratively going on where she's making a suggestion that Absalom picks up? Again, is she unassuming again? Is is there any kind of sense of it? She goes for first unassumingness to now unassuming again, and now he takes advantage of this Absalom, takes advantage of her similarly like Amnon did or anything like that. I don't think Absalom is taking advantage. I think Absalom is playing the big brother protector and avenger. Uh, I think in this regard, uh, he is acting uh, uh, justly, though he is acting outside of the court system. Uh, he'd become a private vigilante. 
what moves him to do it is uh, something I want to address in the next hour. Uh, his motivation is not pure defense of her integrity. It's almost as if her rape provides him with an excuse to eliminate the number one uh, contender for succession to the throne. But I'm, I'm, I'm saying at least in this regard, somebody treated Amnon the way he deserved to be treated, though it was outside the proper civil uh, justice system. David should have done it for him. Amnon deserves to die. He deserves to die for this. That's the law. That's the Levitical and Deuteronomic law. He should have been executed. So then when you, when you called what Absalom did murder, it is still murder, but it, because of the way he did it, even though... Yes, it's, it's murder because of the way he contrives it. It's not, it's not just execution. It is it's vigilante murder. Good clarification. I, you know, I, 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 I'm not saying it's justifiable uh, homicide or justifiable uh, execution. But he still gets what he deserves. Yes, Amnon does get what he deserves. Yes, Kay? Um, I think in parallel to Jonadab's counsel, it is as much of a potential ruse as Jonadab's plea for uh, Amnon to pretend to be sick. In other words, we have the narrator suggesting that somebody is trying to put up a show or put up a front, which is not actually true in the case of Jonadab, and so is Absalom. So, no, I'm not certain... I, I think I lean to the side that he is inviting David, expecting David to reject it anyway. But that's his excuse to get Amnon out there. I lean that way, Kay. I, I, you know, I, you, you might press me on another day and I might lean the other way slightly. But no, I, I, I think he is as shrewd as Jonadab, if not shrewder. I have suggested that at the end of chapter 13, uh, the name David and Absalom is portentous. That is, it 
for it portends or foreshadows an ominous narrative ripple which is going to flow out over the next six chapters. <clears throat> but I want to now focus on the content of this 14th chapter and ask the question, are there rippling layers of narrative in David's history which ripples the woman of Tekoa radiates? In other words, <clears throat> is there a narrative ripple in David's story that is recapitulated or reflected or radiated as a narrative ripple in the woman of Tekoa and her appearance in David's court. What's she doing? She's telling a what? Okay, I like that, Pat. And who else has told a parable? Nathan has told a parable. Very good. She's telling a tale, even as Nathan has told a tale, and therefore we want to see her as reflecting the narrative ripple that Nathan brings. Now, what was the purpose of each of those narrative tales? <clears throat> Purpose of Nathan's tale was to point out David's sin, actually to bring the occasion or cause the occasion for David to have a change of mind or a change of heart. Okay, what's the purpose of the woman of Tekoa's tale? Same thing, thing, to cause David to have a change of heart. Right? With respect to whom? Absalom. Very good. Now, is Nathan's tale historically true? No, it's not necessarily a real incident, okay? It is a story. Is the woman's tale historically true? Show me from two verses that you can support your statement, Ben. Very good. Verse 3, Joab puts the words in her mouth. What other verse indicates that her story is not historically true? In other words, it's not the story of of two sons. It's not really a story about her two boys. Yes, very good. And also in verse 22, Joab says, The king has performed the request of his servant. In other words, Joab has put her up to it. He's fed her with the tale. He's primed her in how to relate it. And he now thanks David for getting what he, Joab, wanted through the woman telling the story. All right. Now, Joab is the orchestrator of this tale. She is pleading with David to let the one son live even though he's a murderer. Her endangered son is David's endangered son. Her endangered son is a parabolic reflection of Absalom. 
So, the conclusion of her tale is, let Absalom live even though he is a murderer and rightfully deserves the death penalty, capital punishment. All right, so Joab is the orchestrator of the story in this chapter, and he's and he is, in fact, the chief character, the chief actor in this drama. The conversation that takes place between David and the woman is the longest conversation in the entire book of First and Second Samuel. This is the longest dialogue in the whole book, and it is Job that Joab that contrives it. All right, so we've got the central features of this. <clears throat> The story is not true. The story is fabricated by Joab. The story is fabricated by Joab for some particular reason. What is motivating Joab to fabricate this tale in or on the lips of a wise woman, as she's sometimes called from Tekoa, although the term wise woman doesn't occur in the narrative itself? Well, let's consider a few options. Does he feel sorry for Absalom? And because he's been banished, he wants him to be returned. Does Joab have a real feeling that, you know, Absalom has been kind of mistreated and he's a son that's away from home? He's on the other side of the Jordan River. Let's take a look at verse 29. Does verse 29 suggest to you that Joab is feeling sorry for Absalom? No, because when Joab gets Absalom back in Jerusalem, he doesn't pay any attention to him. So it's not because Joab is feeling sorry for Absalom that he puts this woman up to this tale. Something else is driving Joab. Well, maybe... He wants justice. Maybe he wants Absalom to come back to Jerusalem to face the music. Is that Joab's goal? That he wants Absalom to stand in a court of law and face the trial and judges of the court of Israel? No, Joab's not interested in justice. Well, then why is he doing this? Because he is exploiting and manipulating David. That's why. This is Joab acting in character. All right, now, how is he manipulating or exploiting David by this incident? David's pattern of being manipulated by his sons, proximate, Amnon and Absalom will now be balanced with David's pattern of being manipulated by his commanding general, Joab, remotely in the case of Abner and Uriah. Notice, once again, we have these proximate and remote vectors returning to us. Joab taking advantage of those vectors in this instance, that is, bringing the remote Absalom back into the proximate relationship with his father for purposes that Joab is contriving. David becomes the pawn in the hands of his murderous son 
on whom he dotes. Sheep shearing festival. David becomes a pawn in the hands of his murderous general on whom he relies. Woman of Tekoa incident. In other words, our narrator is building a series of parallel duplication narratives in which David is manipulated. He is exploited and used. There was no justice for Uriah. There was no justice for Abner. Now there is no justice for Absalom. And notice that Joab's hand is vested in all three cases. Every one of these incidents in which there is injustice has the hand of Joab behind it. Does Joab draw David into his circle? Mm. Now that is profound. Yes. Is that what our narrator is doing? Attempting to make the king a mirror reflection of himself. Joab attempting to re-image David as a mirror of himself. That is, one who permits or commits injustice and gets away with it just like I commit and permit injustice and I get away with it. So if Joab murders Abner and David lets him get away with it, is David a mirror of Joab? If Joab consents to the orchestration of the murder of Uriah and David cooperates with him, letting him get away with it, Is David a mirror of Joab? If Joab protects and rehabilitates the murderous Absalom and David cooperates, letting him get away with it, is David a mirror of Joab? Do you see the pattern that our narrator is drawing you? Is the narrator crafting a very subtle but very graphic study in alter ego. David, like the Joab, who exploits and manipulates him. Is this why David readily sees the hand of Joab in the woman of Tekoa's tale, verse 19? Does he recognize himself in the fable? And thus perceives his alter ego in the fiction. Having compromised himself with Abner, Uriah, Amnon, and Absalom, David is trapped. He's trapped by his own guilt. He's trapped by his own inconsistency. He's trapped by his own impotence. If he did not act against Amnon, how can he act against Absalom, who did what he should have done, judicially? And so having failed himself, as well as the will of God, he is unable to act against Absalom. He's been neutered. He's neutered himself. He is trapped by failure. 
the failure which binds him more and more in his own guilt, in his own passivity, in his own inconsistency, and in his own moral weakness. And these round, full-bodied characters, these full-bodied characters around David, proximate characters, feed on his weakness, passivity, and guilt. Joab exploits his role as leader of the army and commits murder. David does nothing. Amnon exploits his role as suffering son and commits rape. David does nothing. Joab exploits his role as henchman, hatchet man, trigger man, and allows Uriah to be murdered. David does nothing. Absalom exploits his role as favored son, doted upon son, spoiled brat son, overindulged son, unrestrained son, son who is beautiful like his beautiful father, Absalom exploits his filial role and commits murder. David does nothing. David's failures are replayed through the unfolding ripples of his narrative story, ripples which reinforce one another with increasing impotence, increasing guilt, and increasing injustice. And we're not at the end of it. Wait until we see him running out of Jerusalem. Wait until we see him absolutely, utterly humiliated. Joab recognizes the character flaw. And Joab exploits it. Caring nothing for Absalom in truth, as we already noted in verse 29... He uses Absalom to exploit David's weakness for his own purposes. Joab may be exploited by David. The Uriah incident testifies to that. But he exploits David in return, and that more than once. Abner threatens Joab's role of exploiting David. Abner is murdered. He's eliminated. He's taken out of the way. Absalom threatens Joab's power to galvanize David to action. Action, not brooding, not brooding misdirected paralysis. Absalom is brought from remote exile to proximate restoration. And though David does not see him, he will not look him in the face, David no longer broods. He's not brooding with inactive fixation. What Joab has done is galvanize David to fixate on something other than his handsome David-like son. Joab makes David like himself, no longer fixated on a renegade son. For David's problem is Joab's problem. And Joab says, I got to get rid of his problem in order to get rid of my own. And that's Absalom. Because he's got this kingdom tied up in inactivity and passivity. We've got to get this king off dead center. And as long as he's brooding over that renegade son, three years away on the Transjordanian side, we're not getting anything done in this kingdom. Bring him back. 
and get them restored so that I can get on with my agenda. A king with one problem, one obstacle, has to have that problem or obstacle put behind him so that we can get on with a business at hand. Joab has put the problem of Absalom more or less behind himself by the fiction from the woman of Tekoa. David has put the problem of Absalom more or less behind himself by the fiction of letting his son live in Jerusalem, but without seeing his father's face. David and Joab act in tandem. They act in tandem because Joab understands how to exploit David as he manipulates his own exploitational agenda. But Absalom, (laughs) Absalom will not be exploited He will exploit. And this renegade firebrand sets fire to Joab's fields in order to get the attention he thinks he deserves, displacing Joab from the center of the spotlight and placing himself in the center of the spotlight. Joab is outraged. The murderous son turns out to be the neighborhood bully. Either Frankenstein, who destroys his apparent benefactor's property in a pity party. And yet the poster boy gets exactly what he wanted. He gets the attention of Joab. He snaps him right up straight. What'd you do that for? Well, okay, now you're going to listen to me. Now the exploiter exploits. You don't like your own medicine, do you, Joab? Joab, the manipulator, is manipulated by the pup, the vain, egocentric, pretty boy. His role, once more, controlling David and prepares the way for Absalom to prostrate himself before the face of his father and receive his father's kiss of shalom. So Absalom gets what he wants, and he exploits the exploiter. But in receiving his father's kiss, Absalom receives no conversation. No dialogue in verse 33. All is silence. Mute, non-verbal silence. The father may kiss the son who prostrates himself before him. The son may fall with his face to the ground before his father, but neither will speak. Neither will utter one word. The closing scene of chapter 14 is as portentous as the opening scene of chapter 14 And the opening scene of chapter 15 will reveal the ominous nature of that silence. The ominous nature of that silence between David and Absalom in chapter 14, verse 33. Absalom has manipulated David to kiss him, to accept him, to disregard his murderous act. 
He has exploited his father's weakness, his weakness of doting on a wicked child, which doting only makes the child more wicked, wanting more and more and more from the weak, doting parent. Absalom wants more. He wants the crown of Israel and the head of his father on which it sits. He wants the whole head of that man, his father. And Joab, manipulator Joab, out-manipulated by Absalom, Joab will not forget. Joab will not forget that beautiful hair, nor that impotent rebel swinging from a tree as he commits murder once more in 2 Samuel 18. And David, manipulated David, the mirror of his general. David will be redeemed by the indwelling grace of God alone, not by his weakness, not by his parental failure, not by his winking at rape and murder and injustice. David will be reduced to no other foundation save the undeserved mercy of God in Christ Jesus to come. And there in Christ Jesus is the remedy. There is the remedy for impotence, failure, guilt, being exploited by others, being manipulated by others, being the mirror of the evil-intentioned others who seek to use us for their own ulterior agendas. There in Christ Jesus is the answer. With Christ Jesus, you are able to resist these devilish temptations, and standing with Christ and standing in Christ, you are able to proclaim, I do not belong to your world, Joab, nor to your world, Amnon, and I do not belong to your world, Absalom, you twit. I belong to the world of the eschatological king, the eschatological David. The eschatological son of the father. I belong to the world of heaven itself and you cannot make me the mirror of your world. I will not let you for I am in Christ Jesus and you will not twist me around. You want to play the devil's game, you play it elsewhere. But I am standing in Christ Jesus. God's honor and glory is more important to me than the shame with which you tempt me. You want to manipulate me even in the church? I defy you. I defy you. For my feet are anchored on the rock. And if you want to stand in the pit of hell while you play the devilish scheme of temptation and dominating other human beings and twisting them and tweaking them and making them do what you want because you've got prestige or money or power or whatever you think you've got on them. 
then you take your little game and go where it belongs. It does not touch me. I stand before the face of God in heaven. David doesn't have the character to say that. And sadly, there aren't many Christians who do. Or the church wouldn't be in the debacle of the mess it's in if they did. How many of these prima donnas in the church and in the ruling assemblies of the church are there because it's all about me and they're trying to be the reformed poster boy of the world or the reformed poster boy of somebody's session or consistory. We need men of character who have got the fire of Christ's identity in them and will not be battered or twisted by the outrageous fantasies of the people of this world who want to control the church or control denominations or control the discussion. In Christ, you are fearless, even of the exploiters and manipulators. Now, before I ask for any comments or questions, I want to make a few additional desultory observations on 2 Samuel 14. First, I pose the question of a quasi-Oedipal complex in Absalom. The Greek tragedy Oedipus Rex has bequeathed to modern, especially Freudian psychology, the depraved complex of a son who longs to murder his father and marry his mother. In the Greek drama, the fates compel the hapless Oedipus to fulfill their inexorable decrees, try as he will to avoid the sin of murder and incest. Fatalism, whether Greek or Islamic, discounts moral voluntarism, and decrees ends in spite of means. In this system, determinism destroys voluntary choice. Calvinism and Augustinianism before it is often charged with this caricature. God's decrees of foreordination destroy voluntary human choice. Not so. Not so. Calvinism and Augustinianism before it accounts for divine determinism through the use of voluntary or willful choices. The non-fatalistic, non-Freudian psychology of Augustinian Calvinism combines means and ends in a harmonious, willful determinism. The human will is always determined. The human will is always determined by human nature. And as the great Augustinian Calvinist Jonathan Edwards wrote, no human will acts voluntarily 
in any other way than according to the determinism of what pleases it most at that instant. A human moral agent always chooses what pleases it most at any given moment. This is voluntary determinism, not fatalism. Moral agents making voluntary choices determined by what pleases them most at that time. And Almighty God has decreed it so. He has decreed that the human will will operate as a voluntary agent determined to choose what pleases it most in every given instant. That is how the creator has created the will to work. And so he determines the will through its voluntary choices. Read Jonathan Edwards. Back to the quasi-edible complex and Absalom. Absalom is determined to murder his father. That voluntary choice in Absalom's nature will manifest itself in chapter 15 and following as we shall see. This son wants to kill his father and very nearly succeeds. While there is no evidence of the other half of the edible complex in Absalom that he wanted to marry his mother, we note Absalom's flagrant and public deflowering. I personally believe it may be called rape. Absalom's flagrant and public rape of David's concubines in chapter 16, verse 22. The brutal, hateful power over another that is displayed in snuffing out a human life is also displayed in subjugating and violating human sexual dignity and integrity. Absalom is a brute a depraved, reprobate brute. Let us note, then, the narrator's clue about a central aspect of Absalom's character. He is called beautiful. Beautiful as his beautiful father, David. The words are exactly the same in Hebrew. And as our narrator highlights the physical appearance, so he also spotlights the psychical disposition of the beautiful son of the beautiful father. Beautiful Absalom's psyche fixates on his beautiful father. In fact, Absalom fixates on himself as beautiful as his beautiful father. And as his beautiful father is king, enjoys the beauty of the limelight displaying his beautiful person, so Absalom longs for the limelight, for the central focal point of a nation's rapt attention on a beautiful, regal person. And Absalom Absalom will have that role with his beauty. 
more youthful than his aging, beautiful father. Absalom fixates on David's beauty because Absalom wants to become David, to supplant David, to have what David has, the central position of power, attention, and acclaim that goes with being a beautiful king in Jerusalem. And to become David, he must murder David. To become the king, Absalom must kill the king. Absalom is consumed. Absalom is obsessed. He is fixated on becoming king because he, he is the truly, really Jerusalem idol. He and he alone is the beautiful one. Second, David shares Absalom's delusion. David shares Absalom's delusion. That is, David sees Absalom as he sees himself. He dotes on Absalom because he is the beautiful self, his own beautiful self in beautiful Absalom. The image of beautiful David is reprised in beautiful Absalom. And so David, who has indulged himself with lust and murder, cannot restrain his very own beautiful image, Absalom, when he imitates his beautiful father with murder and lust. In fact, even as Absalom is conscious of his youthful beauty, in contrast to his graying aging father, so David re-images himself in the young buck. Oh, how many fathers seek to recapture their lost youth in their sons. Oh, you don't believe it? The world of athletics is the prime example and has been the ruin of more than one son of a father athlete trying to become in his son what he was never himself or what he fantasizes he was himself. David reimages himself in young Absalom, claiming, attempting to reclaim his lost youth. The good old days of adventure, bravado, Daring do and popular acclaim. Saul is slain his thousand. David is slain his ten thousand. Absalom is David's great hope for reliving his lost youth. But David is impervious to the true character of his beautiful son. If he murders his brother in cold blood, David is impervious. David longs for beautiful Absalom, chapter 13, verse 39. He longs for this murderer, this beautiful murderer. If he exiles himself for three years from his beautiful father, David broods. He broods over his absent beautiful son. If his beautiful son finally comes home, David lets him come back to the palace after two years, but he doesn't speak to him. Seeing his beautiful alter ego is enough for David, but it will not be enough for Absalom. 
For though David may see Absalom as one of the beautiful people, Absalom is in truth a snake. He is a seed of the serpent. Absalom himself, a brooding, scheming son of Satan, beautiful, subtle, serpentine Satan. Remember those pictures of Satan as a snake in the garden. He is a beautiful snake in that tree and more subtle than all of the beasts of the field. David, David will rue the day when he did not put Absalom to death as he mortified his own sin, as he put to death his own sin of adultery and murder. David will rue the day. Satan was himself, once upon a time, a beautiful angel of light. Third, I want to note the role of two women, two women of deception, in the narrative downward spiral of the careers of Saul and David. It is significant in my view that both Saul and David, in tasting the consequences of their disobedience to the revealed will of God, are tricked. They are tricked. They are fooled into believing that a female charlatan can give them what they desperately want. Saul goes to the witch of Endor, desperately seeking an interview with the dead Samuel. The witch obliges by giving Saul what he wants. David entertains the woman from Tekoa, desperately seeking reunion with his alienated son Absalom. The woman gives David what he wants. Both women use sleight of hand. They use sleight of hand in order to dupe the desperately seeking monarchs. The witch of Endor ventriloquizes the voice of Samuel and the woman of Tekoa entraps David with a sob story about her sole surviving son, a story that isn't even true. Is the Lord God exploiting the vulnerability of gullible sinner David and Saul through women? Is he? It would not be the first time in the history of redemption that that had happened. But more significantly, in being entrapped by their own sin, murder in both Saul and David's case, mind you, in being entrapped by their own sin, both kings are entrapped by characters who play to their egos, who play to their desperate egos. It is the almighty and idolatrous I, I, that drives Saul to endure, even as it inclines David's ear to the woman of Tukoa. Saul's prostitution at the witch's abode is an expression of his own ego laid in the dust. David will not prostrate himself before Absalom, but his ego will be reduced to dust to dust and shame as he exits Jerusalem with Absalom in hot pursuit. 
The downward spiral of Saul and David is exacerbated by two female deceivers. And both Saul and David are snagged by the hook of wish fulfillment. Wish fulfillment blinded by their own hypocrisy and deceit. You may once again feel I'm being far too hard on David. No harder than, in my estimation, our divinely inspired narrator. As I follow the narrative ripples which ebb and flow from his inspired account. But I leave you with this. David is a character, after all, loved by the people of God of every age. It is not just for his sweet psalms, nor for his dramatic victory over Goliath. It is not for his dashing bravado in evading the murderous pursuit of Saul. When we stand back from the character of David, a remote point of view, if you will, we find ourselves drawn to him, a proximate point of view, if you will. We find ourselves drawn to David as a child of grace, a sincere penitent, a humiliated king, and on occasion, on occasion, a just and tender king. What is different about David, sinner, is that this sinner is loved of God. That this sinner is touched by the grace of God. That this sinner is broken and contrite in heart through the merciful, loving kindness of God. Ultimately, ultimately, David's idolatrous and almighty I is crucified on a cross of self-conviction. Against thee and thee only, O Lord, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Ultimately, ultimately, David's idolatrous and almighty eye is laid in the dust of self-abnegation. Blessed is the man whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Ultimately, ultimately, David's idolatrous and almighty eye runs down with tears with the bitter tears of confession and guilt and shame and just self-condemnation. There is something lovable in David because there is the grace of God in David's heart, the grace of God bundled up in David's life. But the heart of Absalom is a heart of darkness. No one in the history of the church finds Absalom lovable, save Absalom himself. Yes, Absalom's narcissism craves self-love, adorns itself with his beautiful appearance, congratulates itself in its vigilante retribution and political machinations. Yes, 
Absalom's narcissism preens itself on public acclaim and the adulation of the masses. Absalom delights in being the poster boy. He is more than the equal of his father. He is himself messianic. He is a God-given icon to the nation to overthrow the old order and to deliver the kingdom into the era of me. My agenda. My beautiful persona. Such delusion. Such delusion, the ever-bewitching delusion of self-obsession. Self-obsession. Such is the trap that God lays for all tyrannical personalities. All tyrannical personalities. Their foot shall slide in due time. Indeed, God himself will confound their delusional schemes, their messianic dreams, their their self-absorbed cult of the almighty I. It's all about me. Believe it, brothers and sisters, the Lord shall have them in derision. So much for the tin horn Absaloms of the 21st century. Any questions or comments? Yes. In the description of the wise woman, um, what kind of Hebrew word is used there? Does it mean wise as we would assume, or does it mean sly or conniving? Yes, it means more shrewd. That's the implication of the term. And and what she's done is, of course, being used shrewdly uh, because she's wise enough to know how to play the role. And then uh, at the beginning of your discussion of her, you set her up in comparison to uh, Nathan. Um, but then you've also set up her in comparison to the Witch of Endor. Can you flesh out... Uh, why there's the foiling of Nathan's prophecy by her? What's happening in terms of the narrative progression that Nathan comes in, uses a parable to confront David with his wrongdoing. This woman comes in, uses a parable to uh, facilitate the manipulation of David. Um, so can you comment on the, the narrative progression there and the use of the similar device, but for different means and different ends? Yeah, the, 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 that's a good observation. The devices are contrasted because Nathan comes by the command and says, thus saith the Lord. She does not come by the command of God or thus saith the Lord. So that's the difference. The fact that the two narratives are used uh, in a parabolic matter is a reflection of how God is working out that very bringing of evil out of uh, thus saith the Lord with Nathan 
to David and fulfilling his providential retribution on David's house, even through this woman's contrivance or being part of a contrived plot to uh, manipulate David. Even though the, this, the motivation for the parable and the use of the parable is different, uh, God is still working. I mean, this is a Genesis 50. God's still working it towards his purpose, towards his end. Towards Correct. His, okay. He's providentially using her, but he's using her in a reflective, uh, in a reflective, rippling fashion, which recalls the way a parable was used for uh, for good in First uh, Samuel, Second Samuel, twelve. But now here is a parable or tale which is going to be used to uh, for evil in David's case, for uh, for bringing evil out of his own household. So then, um, is Joab being set up in the position of the the divine chastiser? Is he setting himself up in that position since God is the one that commands Nathan and Joab is the one that commands the woman of Tekoa? Is this him putting himself in that position as, is it a power play again, but on a different level? I mean, I'm kind of talking off the top of my head here, but... No, it is God using Joab for his own purposes, allowing Joab to be Joab. He's giving him up to his own character, and that uh, that, uh, entraps David in David's own mirror reflection of Joab. I was was approaching it more from David, or Joab putting more... uh, pouring coals on his head because he's stepping into a role that only God should step into, so to speak, sending the the one to chastise the king. Now, Joab's not trying to chastise the king or correct him. He's trying to control him. So it's, it's no providential uh, over-superintendence in Joab's estimate, estimation. It's purely political. He's a political opportunist. God uses that in him. But Joab is not motivated by anything that glorifies God. Never. Right. And that's why I'm suggesting Joab puts himself in the place of God. So, in the, but I'll talk with you about it. Oh, you're, you're saying that he's nefariously putting himself in the place of God. Right. I, I don't think he's even, I don't think he's even going that far. Uh, you know, it, you may say de facto he does, but I don't think he's conscious of doing that. It's just simply think he's pulling the strings as a chief, uh, a commander in chief of the army. And a commander in chief of the command, uh, pulling the strings of the commander in chief of the commander in chief, because he's out commander in chief and commander in chief. Can I ask another one? Does anyone else have questions? <laughs> no, you can't ask another one until somebody else has a chance first. I guess nobody else wants a chance. Oh no, here, do you want a chance, Scott? No, only so that she can have a chance. All right. <laughs> You're learning this manipulative game very well. All right. Um, He's yielding the floor to you. Okay. Thank you. Um, so you've made the connection. You've, you've, uh, interesting edible thing. Um, uh, edible complex idea. Um, so then let's connect to Hamlet, another famous edible complexian. Um, so Hamlet acts out of revenge. Um, is, is Absalom in, in the next chapter when he is he acting out of revenge for his father's ignoring him? Is there any sort? Or is, is it simply a power play? Or is there is there an element of I want to get back at my dad for how he's treated me and it, uh, you know ignored me for these last five years? I think that there is truth in that observation. Uh, I think he is brooding in his both his exile and in his banishment from his father's face 
for the two years in Jerusalem. But I want to go back before that to the characterization that Absalom manifests in murdering Amnon. Uh, I believe that the, the, the thing that's really driving Absalom most of all is this displacement of his father. And I point to the fact that he goes after Amnon because Amnon is the firstborn and has the just right of succession before he does. So he's going to knock him off and perhaps knock off number two in the process. And, you know, <clears throat> I, I think that's what's driving him. It's the driving uh, it, it's, the, the, it's the part of the Oedipal complex that says, I'm going to get rid of my father because I want my father's position. And I'll brood about whether he doesn't pay any attention to me, but, you know, that's just adding fuel to the fire of what's already been burning in me ever since I was a little kid. These are, these are deep, full-bodied characters, as uh, uh, narrative anal- analysts will say, and uh, <clears throat> there's a great deal of subtlety in what the narrator is doing by the way he draws the characters, by the positions that he places in, by the stories that he selects. You know, you've got five years here of Absalom. You could have selected a whole mess of stories. But notice the stories that he selects to feature. These are stories which feature, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the internal movings, the willful, voluntary willfulness of Amnon, Absalom. David and Joab. This is masterful storytelling, but it's also masterful psychologizing and theologizing. So don't just read the stories. You have to think about what's going on in the drama of the story, why the narrator is doing it the way he's doing it. Next week, revolution... Chapter 15 and maybe chapter 16. We'll see how far we get.